Well, good morning and welcome to Renewal Church. My name is Jared Kirk. I'm glad to have you here today. If it's your first time or your 40th time, I want to encourage you to hang on to this connection card and drop it in the basket when it comes by in just a few minutes. When you check something off on here, you're not signing up to serve until Jesus comes back. You're signing up to get some more information. Churches have a nasty habit of saying like... um, You check off a box, and they're like, great, you're going to do that forever. (laughs) Well, we are talking about service today. I I grew up in a a home where we didn't go to church. It wasn't a spiritual home. We didn't talk about God. We didn't talk about faith. But I grew up in a home where service was a serious value. It's one of the great gifts my parents gave me. And so um, one of my first memories is there was a widow who lived down the street from us. I, I grew up outside of Fort Lauderdale, way out in the suburbs. And um, my parents would often pick her up. We would see her walking to and from the grocery store. And my parents would always stop and pick her up, and she would get in the car. And I remember this because I was a very small little child, and I thought she smelled funny. You know, it just sticks in your mind as a little kid. And, you know, I was so annoyed and so bothered by that when I was four years old. But now I look back and I see that foundation of service that my parents were trying to build in my life. My mom would take me to Habitat for Humanity. My, my parents would take me, um, we would go to the hospital together around Christmas time. And my mom would prepare gifts and food. And she would go to the nurse's station and say, who doesn't have family who's going to come visit them this holiday? And so she would take me and we would do that. And so we would serve together. And my guess is you've had some foundation experiences in your life as well where you learned the value of serving. My mom would teach me about serving by saying the reason that we serve is not because what we get from it, but because of the warm glow we get inside. We get a warm, fuzzy feeling inside when we serve. That's what, that's what she said. And you know, she's not wrong about that. It feels good to serve. I mean, you know, it feels great to serve. Like you go, you help some people, you do some good things. However, One of the great questions I think that exists in our society around serving, it's actually the the big question of our society when it comes to faith, is why do you need Jesus to serve? Why do you need Jesus to live a good life? Why do you need faith in your life? Can't you be a good person? Can't you do that stuff without being a Christian? And of course, in one sense, fundamentally, you can. Right? You don't have to come to faith in Jesus today. You can walk out of here. You can go serve, and you can be a great person, do some good in this world. That's fantastic. But as Christians, we have these foundational, fundamental beliefs that Jesus is necessary for life. And why is that? And that idea is intersecting with service today when we look in the Bible. And I hope as we look at this passage together, it's in Mark chapter 10. Now, it's going to be in your teaching notes, so you can take these out. Or if you've got an old school paper Bible, pull that out, open it up to Mark chapter 10. Mark is uh, what we call a gospel. It's not a genre of music. It is an authorized biography of Jesus' life, authorized by God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're authorized biographies of Jesus' life. And in Mark, um, we're going to look at verses 35 and onward, and it's Jesus teaching about serving, but you're also going to see here why Jesus is necessary when it comes to serving. So we're going to just look at the text together, and then after that, we're going to try to make it practical and applicable to your life, and I am going to invite you to serve before this message is over, so turn to your neighbor and tell them, uh, he's coming for you. <laughs> All right, Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, this is Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. Now, James and John were two of the first three disciples that Jesus called. Peter was the third one. Um, And they literally asked him, 
if you translate the Greek, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So it's sort of like, hey, Jesus, we've got a blank check question for you. And, um, you know, I, I tried this recently on my wife. I said, hey, would you do me a favor? And she said, yes. And so I said, great. I've always wanted to sail to Bermuda together. And she's like, no, absolutely not. It, I think she's on the hook for it. She said yes. She disagrees. They asked Jesus for a blank check. Jesus is too smart for that. Jesus, the reason they're asking Jesus a question here is because Jesus has just talked about how he will suffer and die on the cross and then rise from the dead. Now, if you read the Gospels, you realize that a lot of times Jesus didn't talk about this. He wasn't talking about it all the time. It was, it was largely a secret for most of his ministry. They call it the Messianic secret. And he finally lets people in on it. He says, the Son of Man, when he refers to himself in Son of Man, that's a divine title. I'll talk about that more in a second. And uh, he says, he's, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. And all John and James hear, they don't hear the suffering, they don't hear about the cross, they hear about rising again. And it clues them in. They say, you know, if Jesus is going to set up a kingdom and he's going to rise from the dead, I bet when he rises from the dead, that's going to be the moment that Jesus sets up his kingdom. And so if we're going to be important in this coming kingdom, we should probably lock things down now. And so they ask Jesus this question. What is your request, Jesus asks. He uh, doesn't fall for their blank check request. Verse 37, they reply, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in the places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. So they, James and John think that the kingdom of God is coming, and they don't want to miss out on the glory because they're too slow in asking Jesus. There's some serious pride in this request, and they're asking Jesus about. But really what they're asking for is a cabinet position. I mean, they're going to have to work in the coming kingdom. I mean, if there's a king and you're in the cabinet... You essentially have a position. You have a job you have to do. They want to serve in the coming kingdom. I mean, just like, uh, you know, every president has a cabinet, and they have jobs they have to do. Now, there are positions of honor. There are positions of glory, but there's also a job that they have to do. They have to serve the country in some way. Uh, James and John want to be an authority. They want to be great, and can you fault them for this? Everyone in Boston wants to be great in some way or another. Even if you don't have dreams of being the greatest among all great people, you want to be a great student. You want to be a great mom. You want to be a great dad. You want to be a great accountant. You want to be great at what you do. People want to be great. James and John are no different. They want to be great. But in this request, we find the reason that Jesus is necessary for life. And it's this funny thing that human beings do with serving, which is that Service seems like it's always automatically a good thing. And externally it is. You know, you're helping someone else. But human beings do this funny thing where they cloak something sinister in their heart with service. James and John um, are, are, you know, on the surface they're asking to serve Jesus in his new kingdom. But what they're really expressing in their heart is a will to power. Now we've got a presidential election coming up. And it doesn't matter which side of the aisle it is because we don't have political parties in this church because I don't think God has a political party. But on both sides, people who want to be president, depending on what year it is, there's a will to power there. But the language is always the language of service, isn't it? Because I want to serve my country. And very few of them have actually served in the military. Most of them just desperately want to be the most powerful person in the world, right? Both parties, doesn't matter but they cloak it in the language of service. And I thought about that. 
because this is something human beings do with service all the time. Now, your thing, my thing, may not be the will to power. But there's often uh, people who find a perverse pleasure in playing the martyr, but they cloak it in the language of service. Like, I'm just serving this person. I'm giving my life for this person. Meanwhile, they desperately want to be needed. They desperately want to suffer by serving this other person so that they can hold it over their head for their entire life. Isn't it funny? That's a thing human beings do. Human beings will also serve for the sake of their own reputation. Now, you don't know anyone who's ever served and then posted pictures of it on social media to make themselves look good, do you? Of course. Right? People, human beings, will use service to bolster their own reputation. Um, it's like a disco in here. <laughs> um, human beings will also use service to meet their emotional needs. This is a little bit of what my mom was talking about, right? That um, you, when you serve, you get a warm feeling inside. So I feel better when I serve. And so the reason I serve is fundamentally about me. So think about this for a second. The reason that I'm serving is about me or about my power or about my pride or about my reputation or about my needs. The human beings will use service to serve ourselves. There is something radically, fundamentally self-centered about human beings, and that's what we see expressed by James and John through the will to power here. But it happens in every single human being. And so Jesus comes into this, and he's going to kind of blow this up for everybody. He's going to reorient the human heart so that it's not primarily self-centered, it is God-centered. Let's see how he does it. Verse 38, Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you about to be baptized with the baptisms of suffering I must be baptized with? Jesus comes back to him and says, hey, you missed a part. You know, you were focused on that rising from the dead, the glory thing, but you missed the part about the cross. You were so focused on the crown that you forgot about the cross. Are you able to handle that part, Jesus says to them? And they reply, verse 39, oh, yes, we are able. Now that, it turns out, is a really stupid answer because Human beings just don't know whether they're able to stand it or bear it or not. People who often talk a big game are not always the people who stick around when things get rough. You've probably learned that lesson in your own life. I, when I was young in middle school, I got in a few fights. And I was always surprised by which ones of my friends actually stayed there and stayed by my side and which ones were absolutely nowhere to be found. James and John answer here boldly but wrongly. Because what we know from reading the story further is that when Jesus was arrested, everyone scattered, including James and John. And so Jesus says, are you able to suffer with me? They say, oh, yes, but the answer was no. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from the bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Now think about this. This is not a great outcome for James and John. You get this good idea. You're like, hey, things are going down. It's about to go down. And so they come up to Jesus and they say, we want to sit. And he says, listen, I'm not promising you the positions of honor, but I am promising you the suffering. It's like not a great outcome for them. Kind of backfired. So here's the other issue that Jesus digs into right here is not only do you not get to decide whether or not you suffer or whether or not you get the honor, but that God is the one who assigns people to places of greatness in his heavenly kingdom. 
The kingdom of God works upside down from the kingdoms of this world. So in this world, if you want to be great, you'd better pursue greatness. If you want to be great at your job, you better dedicate yourself with everything you have to greatness at your job. You'd better pursue greatness. You have to achieve greatness. You have to grab it. You have to take hold of it in this world. But in the kingdom of God, God gives greatness to those who choose to serve. When uh, James and John come up to Jesus, it also creates another pro- a pretty major problem with the disciples. You know this from your own life experience. If you've ever asked, um, if someone has asked for a promotion before you, you get your feathers ruffled. You're like, how dare they? Like, I was going to ask. I was working up the courage. I was waiting to the right time. I wasn't going to be presumptuous. And then they ask, and you get, mad, you get mad at them. Or somebody asks to work on that project before you. Somebody asks for that choice assignment with high visibility before you do. You get mad at them. Maybe somebody asks that girl to go out before you do. Man, if you haven't asked someone out in a while, step it up. Ask a girl out. She's waiting on you. You know, if somebody asks before you do, you get, you get mad. You don't just get mad. You get indignant. You feel like they acted unfairly, they, they stepped out of line. I mean, James and John here definitely step in front of Peter, who's supposed to be the first in line. He is the first disciple among all of Jesus' disciples. So, of course, verse 31, when the ten other disciples heard what James and John had said, they were indignant. So Jesus calls them all together, James and John, Peter, all the twelve. And he says, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people. Now, that... that that phrase, lorded over, means something like they subdue them. They force them to submit. And officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Everyone in the world scrapes and claws their way to the top of the organization. But among you, it will be different. Everyone in the world speaks up first and loudest to make sure they are not overlooked. But among you, it will be different. Everyone in the world plays politics and throws their peers under the bus to get ahead. But among you, it will be different. Everyone in the world expects those under them to serve them. But among you, it will be different. Everyone in the world shows off their position and their power to their peers. They flex just a little bit to show off. But among you... It will be different. For Jesus' followers, there is a different way to be great in this world. There is a different way to lead. There is a different way to be in authority. There is a different way to be in charge. Jesus says, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. That word leader is a translation of the word mega. It means large, in charge, the CEO, the top dog. And the word servant is the word we get deacon from. It essentially was, it was also used to be, to say, to talk about a waiter, like someone who would serve tables. So in other words, in Jesus' kingdom, if you want to be the CEO in God's kingdom, you need to act like a waiter. If you want to be great, you have to serve. Jesus continues, verse 44, he says, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. And then he caps it off, verse 45, for even the son of man, that's Jesus referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. So there it is. You want to be first? You want to be great in God's kingdom? You have to serve. 
And what Jesus says here is actually much more shocking than what we hear. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And when we hear that, we almost always think that Jesus is talking about his humanity, but he's always talking about his divinity. Because the son of man is not, a, is not just like a descriptive like a, a descriptive set of words. It's a title from the book of Daniel, where Dan, the, in the book of Daniel, he sees this vision happening in the sky, and there's one like a son of man who's coming on the glory with the cl- uh, in the clouds with glory. It's a divine figure. I, I wrote it in my notes. It's not, it's not in your notes or on the screen. Here's what Daniel says about the son of man. He says, as my vi- vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one, was led into his presence. He was given authority honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he's saying, I am, I am divine. And so when Jesus says, we come back into the the exchange with James and John, he says, the son of man didn't come to be served. He's saying the one that was given all authority, all power, all sovereignty, the one who's supposed to be served by everyone, didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what's happening here is James and John are using service to cloak their will to power, and Jesus is pointing out the fact that they need someone to die in their place so, to kill their radical self-centeredness that can co-opt something as beautiful as service and make it about themselves, which is what every single human being needs. We don't just need to serve so that God likes us. That's a weird thought to begin with. Right? So many of us think like, I'm going to serve, I'm going to do good things, and God's going to love me. It's like, does, you know, if your, father, if, your, if your human father acted like that, he would be a terrible father. Like what father loves his good kids? Right? Your heavenly father, it turns out, doesn't love good people. He just loves people. That's what God is like. And when Jesus comes and dies on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, he wipes out our radical self-centeredness and replaces it with God-centeredness, which means your life, out of gratitude and joy, you can serve God and you can serve people. That's why Christians believe that, yes, anyone can just go out the doors and serve today. Of course you can but Jesus is utterly, compellingly necessary to kill the radical self-centeredness in your life that will take even service and make it about you. We have a name as Christians for that radical self-centeredness. We call it sin. It's incredibly helpful because it's shorter. It's just three letters, just You know, Jesus comes to kill that in us by bearing it on the cross in our place to make us radically God-centered. So most of us, coming back to the service, most of us think we can earn greatness by pursuing greatness, but in the kingdom of God, God assigns greatness to those who choose service. So what does it look like for us to serve in the way of Jesus? If you have been transformed by God, if you turn from your sin to put your faith in Jesus Christ, and there's a radical reorientation that happens in your heart, some people might call that a conversion, from being self-centered to being God-centered, how do you serve in the way that Jesus served? And I want to try to put some shoe leather on this message so that when you, you can walk out of here with it and put it into practice in your life. 
And here's the, the three ideas today. I serve like Jesus when, number one, my goal is the Father's glory. <clears throat> I serve like Jesus when my goal is the Father's glory. For James and John in this story, the goal is pretty obviously their own glory, right? They want the positions of power and honor. They want people to look at them. They want, um, they want to make their name great instead of making God's name great. They're living for their reputation rather than living for God's reputation. And it's easy to get down on them, but how often do we live and think about our own reputation in this world instead of God's reputation in this world? We do the same thing, but Jesus always lived for the glory of the Father. Every moment, every millisecond of every day of his life, Jesus lived for the glory of the Father. John 17, four, Jesus says, uh, he's speaking to the Father. He says, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus served perfectly, and he glorified the Father perfectly. Now, let's talk for a second, because most of us don't talk about glory much anymore. When the Bible talks about bringing glory to someone or something, it means, when it says Jesus glorified the Father, it means he's showing who the Father is and what he's like. He's giving the world a crystal clear picture of who God is and what he's like. Jesus helps us understand God. He clarifies God, and we actually get to do the same exact thing in an imperfect way. It's been said... Um, before that there's, there's two ways to magnify something. There's a, um, a microscope which looks at something infinitesimally small and makes it bigger than what it really is so that you can see it clearly. But there's also a telescope which takes something that is um, incredibly huge but distant. And it makes the image more like what it really is so that you can see it clearly. And that's how a Christian glorifies God. God's beauty, his glory, his greatness, his grace is immense and beautiful and beyond comprehending. And a Christian takes that immense glory and, and makes it just a little brighter and a little more beautiful so that the people around you get a clearer picture of who God is and what he's really like. And the way that we do this as Christians is by serving. And we serve by his power. So not only do our actions show who God is and what he's like, but even the strength that we serve by shows off God's power. Uh, 1 Peter 4.11 is the verse about this. It's in your notes. It says, do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Circle that phrase, God supplies, in your notes. You see, even when you serve, you can serve with the energy God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. Everything you do, when it's by his power, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. You know, in this, in this church, we've been going for about five years now, and there have been days when I wanted to quit, when I didn't see the results that I wanted to see in this church, there were days when I, there were, there were days, there were months, there were occasional years where I felt like God wasn't answering my prayers. And it was like, I would pray and it feels like they're just bouncing off the ceiling and God's not hearing and God's not moving. And I think, God, what am I gonna do here? I would feel weak. I would feel like I'm not up to the task. I would feel like I don't have the strength to serve anymore. Maybe I could move to the suburbs and people would serve me. I could move somewhere where on the first day of school, they don't have to teach my kids what needles look like. I could move somewhere where I don't have to come face to face with the reality of drug use and drug addiction every single day of my life as I drive home. 
You know, I could, I could move somewhere where the schools are better. And then it wouldn't take so much strength, and I wouldn't feel so weak. And then I come back over and over and over again to 2 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul talked about his weakness and what God does with that. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 9. He says, three different times I begged with the Lord to take it away. He's talking about something that's making him weak in his life. Each time, God says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. When I serve out of my strength, I'm glorifying me. When I serve out of God's strength, when I get to the point that I say, God, all I've got is you, then God glorifies himself. Um, a couple of years ago in our church, I talked to a, a, t- a young teacher who was at a terrible school with nonstop chaos in the classroom. Uh, every teacher in here is like, was that me? <laughs> that, was probably, uh, that, was, that was probably me. <laughs> and um, another day, one day, another exasperated teacher was talking to her and said, you know, how are you so strong? How do you manage in all the chaos? And I'm paraphrasing here, but she, she replied, you know, I'm not strong. God is strong, and I'm holding on to him. That's how you glorify God, through his relying on his power. When God is your power source, he gets all the glory for all your service, and then our city will begin to see who God is and what he's like. Okay, so number one, I serve like Jesus when my goal is the Father's glory. Number two, I serve like Jesus when I am motivated by love for people. James and John were motivated by a desire to get ahead, not not a desire of love for the other disciples. Later in the New Testament, they'll refer to this, this as selfish ambition. Their love for the other disciples. Now remember, these are these are 12 men who spent every day together doing ministry together with Jesus. I mean, they spent more time together than I spend with my family. And their love for the other disciples receded into nothing as they dreamed about the coming spotlight. So in a way, you know, they were, they were volunteering to serve in the coming kingdom, but they weren't motivated by a desire to love anyone except for themselves. Jesus, by contrast, was all about love all the time. Uh, here's our memory verse for today. Um, it says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Underline that phrase, just as I have loved you, in your teaching notes. Jesus was all about love for others all the time. He was radically others-focused. Bruce Thielman was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, and he told of a conversation with a member from his church who came up to him one day. He said, "You, you preachers talk a lot about do unto others, but when you get right down to it, it comes down to bull theology. And Thielman asked, bull theology, what is that? And the man from his church said, remember what Pilate did when he had a chance to acquit Jesus? He called for a bull, and he washed his hands of the whole thing. But Jesus, the night before his death, called for a bull and proceeded to wash the feet of the disciples. It all comes down to bull theology. Which one will you use? When you see a need, does love motivate you to meet that need? 
when you see a problem, are you going to get in there and act out of love for other people? Or are you going to wash your hands and say, someone else will deal with it. It's not my problem. Or like Jesus, will you say, I will make this my problem and fix it by serving? Galatians 5.13 says, you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's the big command. You've been set free. There's no more, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's like these were Jewish believers. He's like, there's no more Jewish regulations that you have to follow or ceremonial law that you have to follow. Now that you're free from all that, you got some extra time on your hands. Let me tell you what I want you to do. Serve one another in love. And we have been set free too to love one another. But so many times, instead of serving out of love, we serve out of obligation. We feel like we have to. And you're in a church, and you're like, well, I kind of feel bad. Like, I better get in there, you know, and help out, right? It's like, I feel like I better carry the load. But obligation is the enemy of love. And you know how I know that? Valentine's Day. (laughs) Every year, Valentine's Day comes around, and I'm like, oh, crap. I got to do something for this stupid made-up holiday again created by Hallmark. All I'm doing is making my corporate overlords rich. And so like, like I forget and then it's like I go in there and I'm like, and you, and you know what else? Heather's birthday is February 21st. So it's one week after Valentine's Day. So I got bigger problems on my hands. So I'm still trying to deal with Valentine's Day. So I go into the store and I buy a heart-shaped box of chocolates that I think are gonna taste pretty good because she, she never eats them all. So I pick the ones that I'm gonna like. And I go in there and I buy a card and they're like, they're like, and then you close it and you're like, $11, no. So you, like, you go down to the bottom row. <laughs> and like 99 cents, it's like, you're my favorite first wife. And I'm like, got it, that's the card. That's the card, right? And you know, and I give it to her and she's like, gee, thanks. You know, and I'm like, you're welcome, babe, don't, you know, go nuts. So you know, that, that's obligation. And it's just so funny, we do it every year and she knows it's not out of love and I know it's not out of love, but I'm not stupid enough to just skip it totally, right? <laughs> I'm gonna do it, you know? And then you contrast that to these things in a relationship that come out of true love, you know, when you're, you're, you know, you're just like, this is the thing that's gonna, that, that it's just, they're gonna love it so much because I know them in their core and I wanna serve them and I wanna do something for them. We're at the point, I've been married for 14 years now and, and and if I want to love my wife, I don't need to, as a matter of fact, she gets mad if I spend too much money at Hallmark, right? So I just need to clean the house. That's all I need to do. And she went out of town. She went down to Florida with the kids this last weekend. I want to tell you this so you know, like, I'm not a total loser, you know? And while she was gone, I, I, uh, I fixed, like, the door, and I went down and fixed the fence, and I trimmed all that. I did all this stuff that I'd been meaning to do, but I, I, I couldn't do. And when she got home, she felt loved. There's such a difference between love and obligation. And you know, I do want you to serve in our church, but I want you to serve out of love. Like I want you to, I want you to see the kids who are running around. And because you know, like they're running. Like they belong to me, so they're running, you know. It's just like a blonde streak, just woo, gone. And I want you to see them. And I want you to think to yourself like, I think I could help get those kids to heaven. Like, I could teach those kids the stories from the Bible in a way that would shape the rest of their life. And when they think back and they remember church, they may not remember a single story I told them, but they're going to love church, and they're going to think, like, those church ladies were awesome. That's what they're going to remember. They're going to remember the love, right? Like, I want, you to, I want you to see guests who come into our church, 
And you know, like when you're a guest and you come in, you know, you kind of come in, you like five steps and you're like, crap, like what do I do now? I'm going to have to talk to people. Like I don't know where to go. I don't know like if they're going to start handling snakes. It's going to get, it could get weird in here, right? Like, and, and you're, you know, you have compassion for those people. You want to love those people. And so you say like, I want to join the greeting team so I can help them get where they need to go and just make sure that, that they know that the church cares about them because Jesus cares about them. And I could be a small part of that. Right? We, have, we have people who do this so well, who serve week in and week out out of love instead of obligation for people. Or maybe your heart lights up when you see people who are, who are in, the, in the seats worshiping Jesus, and you think, like, I could help those people worship. Like, I could put the wor- lyrics up on the screen. I could help with the lights, or I could help with the sound so that nothing gets between people and Jesus. And you have this heart to love and serve. Like, we have people who do that every week. And my heart for you as a pastor is that you are filled with love and motivated by love for people, and it drives you forward to service. I had the joy this week of sitting down with, um, with a servant who I think does this really, really well in our kids' ministry. Her name's Naima. And I, one of the reasons we wanted to sit down with her is because she is probably busier than you. <laughs> so go ahead and take a look at this video. It's about three minutes long, uh, our interview with Naima. My name is Naima. I am a second year master's student at Tufts for the Department of Child Study and Human Development. I work part-time at Starbucks. I'll be starting an internship in the fall at the Walker School in Needham, and I serve in the kids' ministry. So just like a few things. <laughs> just a couple. <laughs> um, the best part of working with kids is seeing how much progress they make, um, getting able to see that before and after, after working with them for a while, and um, just seeing the funny things that they come up with, that um, just how they view the world, I think is very interesting. Just remembering the bigger purpose. I think when I feel too tired or don't want to wake up early, I just kind of think um, it's not about me. It's about them learning something new, and if I was put in this position, it's because God is trusting me to do that, so I just kind of remind myself of that, what the bigger purpose is. Um, I think as with any other setting that I work with kids, I feel like I'm always learning, and I try to bring to the table everything that I've learned when it comes to behavior, ways to keep them engaged. Probably not the craziest, but one that I get a lot, just like, um, Miss Naima, do you have any kids? Or like, they ask, oh, so your kids must be how old? They don't really have a good depiction of how old I am, so they're like, you must be 50-something. And I'm like, <laughs> no! Um, but, yeah. Or when I tell them, like, I'm, I'm not an adult, I'm a kid, just like you. Their faces are like, what? <laughs> You're not a kid? I'm like, yeah, I am. So... I'd say that's some of the stuff that I get a lot. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, if you're deciding whether or not you should join kids, it's always fun to try something new. And I think no matter what, you're going to grow from the experience and learn if that's the right place for you or not.
So um, Naima is one of our heroes here at the church, just somebody who serves out of love for the kids every week. And um, the Bible says a lot about the power of serving with love, and it also gives us a caution about serving without love. 1 Corinthians 13 is often read from at weddings, but it's actually about serving in the church. And listen to what it says about serving without love. It says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. So I, my heart for you as a pastor is not that you would serve out of obligation. I don't, there's no reward in that. But that you would serve out of love. Uh, we mentioned in the top hosting that we are going to do ministry match after the service today. If you sign up at ministry match, you're not signing up to serve. You're signing up to get more information about serving. We got a free t-shirt for you if you sign up back there. If you know what you want to do, you can sign up on the back of your connection card. Actually, would you pull that out right now? Because there's four main areas we, wanna in, we, want, we want you to pray and consider serving. It's renewal kids, tech and production, the worship team, and the greeting team. And... Um, there's, only, there's very few requirements for serving. Generally, we train you on everything you need to know. If you're going to serve in kids, you have to have a background check. If you're going to serve on the worship team, you have to have an audition. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can check that box. Or if you sign up at Ministry Match uh, today, uh, we'll make sure you get a T-shirt if you sign up back there. I think there's one medium left, so the first person to sign up gets the medium. All right, let's look at our last, our last idea together. I serve like Jesus when I am willing to pay the cost. Isn't that like Jesus? James and John thought they were able to pay the cost. They said, oh yeah, Lord, we're willing, but it turns out they were mistaken. Many of us don't know whether we'll be able to pay the cost or not, but we can rely on and look to Jesus who did pay the cost. He said in our passage today, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many, Jesus paid every bit of price to serve us when he saw us and loved us. You know, I think about, um, you know, many years ago after 9-11 happened, those who are of a certain age remember where you were when that happened. And just after 9-11, there was a, a story of an NFL player named Pat Tillman. And just after 9-11, he made the decision to turn down $3.9 million offered to him to play in the NFL. He walked away from a lucrative career because he felt he had an obligation to serve in the military. And that choice cost him his life. Our service to God is one that will cost much, even our lives in one sense. But we should be willing to fulfill our obligation to serve him. You know, in our society today, when we empty the gospel of its power, it's not because we add Jewish laws and regulations to the gospel. That's not what we do anymore. That's what was happening in the first century. But today, when we empty the gospel of its power, we do that by promising the glory of the coming kingdom today without the suffering of the cross. We promise all the riches of heaven today with no suffering. We promise all the joy of heaven today with no suffering. We promise all the glory of the crown of heaven without having to carry a cross 
today. And the gospel is emptied of its power. Matthew Henry, who's an older commentator, said this, We know not what we ask when we ask for the glory of wearing the crown and ask not for the grace to bear the cross in our way to it. We have to be willing to pay the cost to serve like Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 14 to us, to his disciples, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. You have to pay the cost. And I, as a pastor, have been impressed and full of joy when I've seen people in our church serve and pay the cost. I've seen tech team members like Marina and Brett get here early before anyone else does to set this place up so that you can see the lyrics, so that there's lights, so that the video's going, so that the sound works, and nobody else knows, but they've given up hours of sleep to get here early so everyone else can worship. I've seen renewal kids workers like Nahima that you saw earlier and Shirley uh, give up attending worship services so that they could love those kids. They give up a service once a month. They're on a rotation, and they say, I would rather love these kids and pay the cost myself so that these kids can know Jesus. I've seen First Impressions team members like Angela and Patrick get here early, stand outside in winter, if that's what it takes, to make sure people know that the church cares about them because Jesus cares about them. Our church is full of people who have set the bar, who are willing to pay the cost to serve so that God can be glorified, so that people can be loved, and so that their heavenly Father is pleased. So as we wrap up today, I, I want to I challenge you to serve. I want to invite you to serve. I think you'll grow. I think you'll become more mature as you take on some responsibility in your life. Right? The more responsibilities you take on, the more you'll grow. I think you'll meet people. I think it'll be fun. I, I know this because that's what it is, right? Like that's, that's always what happens. But the real reason I want you to serve is not because, you know, you're going to meet some people and it's going to be fun, though it will. The real reason is because I believe at the end of your life, you get to stand before God. It's a great privilege. It's a great, great privilege that at the end of your life, you get to stand before God and he gives his judgment on your life. And I think that for those who are willing to pay the cost now, there is a day of incredible, indescribable joy coming for you. When God looks at you and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been uh, faithful with a a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And if the whole world doesn't know what you do, and no one ever sees you serve, and no one ever recognizes you, and you serve in quiet, and you serve in silence, but you hear those words from your father at the end of your life, then I think that's a life well lived.